So um, we're trying out a, a new format, which is we have so many great guests coming on the podcast, but there's also seems to you guys, the listeners seem to like the kind of banter of me and Hugo on Tuesdays is in order to accommodate all of what we want to do. Um, sometimes when we record an episode with a guest that we think is really interesting and fun, um, we're going to put it on the back end of a normal Tuesday episode. So I sat down with Carol Zimmer last week. Carol is a longtime and highly kind of respected, award-winning journalist, NBC, CBS, Bloomberg, NPR. She's got a podcast called Now What? And, and, and it's a discussion really of kind of how the media industry has evolved over the last 30, 40 years and kind of what the good trends are, what the bad trends are, and why we are in the position that we're in right now. So uh, please stick around and listen. Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. We are recording today from P&T Knitwear, 180 Orchard Street, between Houston and Stanton. It is our bookstore and podcast studio. Please come on by if you're in the neighborhood. Um, with Hugo Lindgren, our friend and producer. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. You know, so we're here on Sunday morning. Usually we do Monday morning. And I, I kind of was, like, interested to see, like, is the is the Lower East Side on a Sunday morning going to be like, you know, the sort of refugees from last night? So and let's so predict, because Megan's here also, so keep a count if you can, of how many people, we'll start after this this lady, starting to, <laughs> how many people walk by while we're recording? And I think the answer is going to be extremely few. Okay, you want an over-under on that? Uh, I'm over-under at Five? Five? Oh, wait, I'm going way over five. Going over. Okay. We're going to be talking for half an hour here, so. But whatever. We just we, So the woman who just walked by on her way to the Equinox gym. She doesn't um, count. She doesn't count. We're right. starting now. Okay. Bradley, um, there's some big topics in the news. So we, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to carve out a couple of things to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, TikTok. We're going to talk about James Dolan with the facial recognition um, software that he uses to keep his, his, I guess he's just, he's targeting lawyers, which is kind of interesting. I figured he'd have other enemies in addition to lawyers, I think, but I think he's got a wide range of enemies, right? You're not one though, right? No, but you kind of are one. No, 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 no. Yeah. We, you, we, you, we get, I get along fine with Jim. I mean, I don't really deal with him that much, but, but no, no problems. We're going to talk about Brian Johnson, um, mm -hmm. who's a sort of Silicon Valley founder who is looking to live forever. Yeah. Um, sort of an interesting, it comes up a lot, at least, you know, people doing. We got one. We got one dude. We're one. There's one. Um, right. We're going to talk about entrance music for, for, uh, for political yeah, events. Yeah, I was just trying to call up the... We should the, have some entrance music now since we well, are entering. I'm gonna, when, when we get to it, I'm going to call up the, the song that I wanted to play. Okay, so you got that on your phone. I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm just, I need to find exactly what the note where where in the song but we can figure that out <laughs> we're going to talk about sesame street um we're going to talk about uh, your weekly recommendation so let's start with tiktok um the the, the storyline in tiktok is their effort to sort of i guess they're hiring every available lobbyist in washington um to help them with their difficult yeah. situation of being a chinese owned company mm -hmm. that seems to have this main line into a sort of american consumer behavior yeah. they seem to probably know everything in terms of data um what people are thinking what they're talking about what's coursing through their minds um, what's what is happening and what should be happening yeah so i mean look basically it feels like TikTok is finally getting in the game, but it's very late. And so, it's what, very what game little. do you mean? Just so, so there's been an effort in Washington uh, through multiple types of legislation and proposals to either ban TikTok completely in the United States, uh, ban it from certain types of servers like universities or government devices, uh, or severely limit uh, their activities. Um, and this has been gone for a couple of years, and the reality is. 
it's been good politics for Marco Rubio, for you know Donald Trump. And by the way, it's been on both sides of the aisle, on both to, to bash TikTok because right now, again, if we take the underlying point of this podcast, which is every policy output is the result of a political input. Right now, the only political inputs to members of Congress is if you bash TikTok, you get a lot of attention because the press likes to talk about it and you look like you're smart on China, right? And is it good that TikTok finally started hiring lobbyists and started working the inside game? It is, but the lobbyists alone are not going to fundamentally change the equation, right? So for TikTok to ultimately not be such an easy target, the politicians who are doing so have to realize there's more cost to it uh, than there is benefit, right? So having a bunch of highly paid K Street guys walking around buying steaks is, you know, a, a piece of the puzzle. I get it, but it's not going to change it. I, and I don't think they have any chance of winning until they mobilize their greatest asset, which is our kids, right? And my kids fucking love TikTok. I'm guessing your kids love TikTok. And you know what? Maybe I should, but I don't have as negative a view of TikTok as I do Instagram, for example. Um, and so it seems to me that if you were to mobilize all of the people, or even just a fraction of the people who actually use and enjoy TikTok, it would overwhelm Congress, and the inputs would change completely, right? Because we're talking about tens but, and tens of millions teenagers. of people. I mean, no, but yeah, sure, but one is, okay, you know, look, it, generally speaking, politicians don't want to do things that people don't like, even if they're younger, but right. look, my friend Garrett, fucking, he's 50, he sends me TikToks six times a day. Like, Do you, do you, do you watch him? Generally not, but... Um, <laughs> I don't have time, but um, but you know, overall, I, I would argue that their audience is so vast that based on my experiences of mobilizing people for these kind of fights, Uber, FanDuel, Ease, whatever it is, um, I think there's more than enough to go with. But it requires a different kind of campaign, and the problem TikTok's going to have is the guys in Washington who are buying the stakes um, don't at all want this to happen because it disempowers them. Is disempower a word? Uh, yeah, disempowers, disempowers there. Yeah, so, gonna- so TikTok's going to have to really think out of the box, and they're going to have to be willing to tell people who have a lot of expertise that they're actually wrong. Uh, so, whether or not they have the wisdom and balls to do that, I don't know. But if they want to win, that's what they need to do. Okay, so banning TikTok is probably not realistic. Let's say, well, but, but it is. I mean, legally, you could. No, no, I'm not. I'm just saying a realistic outcome. But but what is the well? But yeah, the realistic outcome is this, right? So so TikTok has already proposed a bunch of measures um, that really would contain the potential risk of China having any control over the platform itself, right? So um, you know, being on U.S. servers, uh, only working with American companies on data stores, not storing certain types of data, a lot of stuff like that. The goal here is to get to a compromise solution, right? The goal is not. Um, or the choices shouldn't be binary. It shouldn't be banning TikTok or TikTok just runs as is with no restrictions at all. It should be that TikTok agrees to a series of restrictions that are heavily negotiated that could be anywhere from what they've proposed to what Trump proposed, which I thought was actually made a lot of sense, which was, you know, make it available to an American company to purchase. Uh, you know, last week, we saw interest from Microsoft, from Walmart, from Oracle, from lots of different people. And why did that fall apart? Because everything Trump does falls apart. <laughs> but the I, those things strike me not understanding the technology as well as certainly you do and others do, but somewhat impractical to have like the data siloed from the company that 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 runs the, the well unless the company unless the U.S. subsidiary is sold completely to another company, right? If Oracle owned TikTok, 
and everything is happening through their system and on their servers, right. that to the extent that we trust that Larry Ellison is not selling data to the Chinese, it should be safe. Right, okay. Um, but by the way, just, just it's been like four minutes and about 15 people have already walked by, so uh, <laughs> 10? It's like a lot. So like, I, I was wildly wrong on this one. I think I am right about TikTok, but I was definitely You're wrong definitely about <laughs> foot traffic on Orchard people. Street on Sunday morning. Well, Bradley, we're going to give you a pass on that. Um, the um, there was a, there, I just, I'm going to read this little quote from the information this week. Had a had a line that I think is uh, consistent with what you're talking about. It said, TikTok has already captured the hearts and minds of 100 million Americans. Chinese ownership or not, TikTok is this generation's MTV like graffiti, art, and jazz. Yeah, I mean, look, what if we got, we could do this. Like, what if we got 1% of TikTok users to advocate? You'd have to put it on the app. You'd have to push them to do it. But if you got 1%, that's a million people, right? I mean, that's a big, big number for legislators or others to hear from directly. So, uh, and you can geolocate all of it. So they're hearing from people who are specific voters or constituents in their district. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that TikTok can, can survive this fight. Um, but the fact that they're now just first doing the basic blocking and tackling of the inside game, let alone what actually might take to win, um, at the moment, it doesn't seem like they know what they're doing. How does this feed into the stuff we were talking about last week with Biden's sort of big tech, like he's, they seem to be sort it, of mobilized. It all, it all fits narratively. Like right. I think what both parties know is being anti-big tech, whether it's Amazon or, or Google or Facebook especially, um, or even ByteDance and TikTok, you know, is, is if nothing else rewarded by uh, the media and rewarded by generally leftist reporters who kind of hate big companies and hate capitalism because they make a lot less money than they think they deserve. Uh, and so they're jealous and resentful of it. Um, and as a result, if nothing else, you're appealing to them. Um, and again, that equation only changes when you take the game out of the inside of policy experts and think tanks and columnists and pundits and reporters uh, and regulators, and you move it into the broader world. Um, until you do that, um, all of the anti-big tech kind of narrative is going to continue. Right. So um, it's funny. A friend of mine sent me a TikTok, uh, kind of a critique of BlackRock. Like, and it, it's funny. It was it was very like in, incredibly engaging. Like even though the guy was, I mean, there was so many things that I know not to be true that the guy said right off the top, just about how big it is and like you know, like just so over the top. And yet, like you 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 could see that it would have like a really powerful effect out there like you know you, you imagine these like 18 year olds just watching this and thinking like oh my god blackrock runs the world like it's this evil empire and you know it it, it runs it, it kept making this point that like like if you look at the stock chart of amazon jeff bezos is no longer the majority shareholder and you're like he hasn't been the majority shareholder probably since like the second day so it's not like <laughs> yeah and, and and look um Obviously, we live in a world where people like to just cast judgments on everything, and everything seems to be either completely good or completely bad. BlackRock is nothing other than an entity that seeks to make a profit for its investors, and its behaviors are solely based on that. And that doesn't make it inherently good. It doesn't make it inherently bad. It's what it chooses to do. And I would say, among CEOs who seem to want to be proactive around using their corporate resources and culture. Wow, there's not only a lot of people, there's an almost dogfight that just happened. That would have been awesome. Um, so um, 
Fink actually is pretty proactive in this. So I do, generally speaking, if you're looking across all the, like, I don't ever see Jeff Bezos suggesting anything that's good for society, whereas like Fink and BlackRock actually do so on a pretty regular basis. And, and I have no business relationship with either of them, but you know, that's been my observation. Um, Jim Dolan. Um, yeah. So let's, let's tell a little bit. This is, I mean, it's coming, it's becoming a national story or is a national story, but in New York, it's a big deal because Jim Dolan owns the Madison Square Garden. He owns the Knicks, he owns the Rangers, and he has um, come under fire for uh, instituting this policy where they do facial recognition at the entrance to the games. And they are looking, I guess they're looking for all kinds of things. He says their security is amazing and the facial recognition is a big part of it. But one of the things they're doing is uh, picking out the lawyers who have active cases against them yes. and denying them entry to the games. Um, first of all, just before we get into the, some of the specifics of this and of Jim Dolan and his very strange um, effort at defending himself this week, um, is this bad, just wrong that he's doing this at all? Like, no. I mean, look, it, it is a potentially bad usage of interesting new technology that mm -hmm. can serve good purposes and bad purposes. And again, this is the point, which is tech is neither inherent, just like businesses. They're not inherently good. It's not inherently bad. It depends on how you use it. And that's why regulation is an important component of all of this. Um, so Dolan has been uh, rejecting people from entry at his different venues, whether it's Madison Square Garden or Radio City or the Beacon Theater, um, by using facial recognition technology to find people who are in some way in an adverse relationship with him, whether they've been a critic of his or they work for a law firm that's suing him for something or whatever else, and he denies them entry. So it, it, does it make sense for Dolan from a kind of macro political standpoint? No, it's incredibly stupid, like because it's, <laughs> it's so petty and it's so small, and yet it's so easy for everyone to talk about write about and that he's just creating massive amounts of PR harm for, for basically no reason whatsoever. With that said, the question that you asked me in, in the notes I thought was interesting would be, what would be the legal strategy to defend Dolan and what would be the political strategy? So think about this a little bit. They're not great, but uh, I think the legal one's actually better than the political one. The legal one is... Um, this is not illegal, right? So if, if a, let's say a, a customer, let's say you, you three times you went to a restaurant and you skipped out on the bill, right? And you came in a fourth time, they're like, no, 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 you're not fucking coming in here. We're not serving you. You've stolen from us, right? No one would question that restaurant's, uh, you know, right to do that. Or if someone, you know, came with the P&T and like started shouting obscenities and they came back in a week later and we threw them out. Nobody would question that. Fundamentally, this is not really any different, which is Jim Dolan owns the venue. He has a legal right to admit who he wants without with certain exceptions based on race and gender and things like that that are protected. And as long as it doesn't fall into protected class, he's entitled to do whatever he wants. And the negative consequence for him is not uh, illegality. It's just looking really bad, which he already does. So... It's okay, but then what if, if, if Jim Dolan's on the phone to you and says, God, Bradley, I'm getting the shit kicked out of me on this one. What do I do? Because he tried an argument like that on this Fox period. So he did this long interview on Fox where he really killed himself in, in, in part because 
he himself is just not a good messenger. Like he just doesn't yeah. is not a he's not someone where you're like, oh wow, this guy's a cool guy. And he's, he's not sympathetic. He's it, not appealing. He's yeah. not particularly articulate. Um, and so he made this whole thing about the yeah. bakery. You actually your example was better <laughs> um, because his was just like, and you, if you complain about the bread, you should, you know why would you let them back in your bakery? Or um, and it, it seemed petty where you made yeah. a real point, which is like if if someone does an incursion against you, against this bookstore, or against like you know the the the, the good example of, of the uh, that you just used like the people understand that and and anyway he did a terrible job but he, he calls you up he says bradley i'm getting killed yeah. how do i how do i get back on this issue yeah i mean i i think you have to the this was the interesting the political strategy on this for me was much harder than the legal strategy and the only thing i could come up with that was even plausible was was a public safety argument which is to say um in the name of public safety, we make choices all of the time. For example, and we've talked about this in this podcast, we make, in order to make our airports and our flights safer, we choose to have the TSA um, and kind of shoes long off, right? By the way, ever since that episode where, where I said question the existence of the TSA, uh-huh. I have been selected for some sort of random check <laughs> every fucking time since, and whether it's through Clear or the TSA, and I am sure. It's a coincidence, but it's sort of like Got your a weird. It has happened a lot. Though. It's kind of like getting disturbing. Wait, they don't ever take you to a special room or anything. No, like but that. it's no. always like, oh yeah, you have to like you know go over here and we have to scan you and pat you down, or you have to show your ID three times. Or TSA is very they're powerful. They're listening yeah. to all the podcasts, just so. finding any is, critics out there. This is the challenge there. of having such a widely popular podcast. <laughs> um, so um, anyway, but look, we make trade-offs between security and convenience, security, and even our sort of basic rights, right? And, and, and society has determined that those trade-offs are okay to make in certain cases. For Dolan, instead of making it about people who criticized him, right, which just looks fucking absurd, um, I would say to Jim, let's broaden this out and let's find people who are potentially a public safety risk and let's start rejecting them. But I think they already do that, don't they? Well, but they don't publicize. Oh, I see. What you mean. Right? Okay, right, and let's change the narrative a little bit. So instead of like We're this person you, right. said, told, said, sell the Knicks, and now you're not letting them in. Right. It's that this person is actually wanted on four counts of assault, and they're going to the next game. We got them right. So I, I, I think you got to reframe this as a public safety thing. But it can't just be like saying it. You have to actually stop doing and talking about the stupid stuff and start doing stuff that has, you know, more significance. Now, there was this other wrinkle to the story, which I, I have to say, I, I think you would at least approve in its in in the impulse behind it, if not necessarily the thing itself, which is, so the state liquor authority is coming after him. For some reason, yeah. that guy has decided he wants to get in the newspaper by, you know, saying mm-hmm. that, that what they're doing is somehow, um, you know, invokes that guy's sort of authority, so now they might have to stop them from selling booze at, at Rangers and Knicks games. So he, um, uh, Jim Jim Dolan made a, like, a flyer that he's threatening to, like, just at some random game in the near future, they're going to cut off all alcohol sales, and there'll be a picture of this guy there being like, if you want to know why you can't get a drink tonight, you know, here's the guy who's responsible. Let him know um, how much you appreciate you know, his look, on, solid on, on public service. On one hand, it seems like a massive overreaction. <laughs> on the other hand, where Dolan's maybe right is people will be pissed off, like if they go to a game they can't get alcohol, and if you very specifically now, I wouldn't do like a poster. I would find a way to like text every single person at the garden again and say, "There's no alcohol tonight." Here's why. Here's this person's phone. You know, 
click here to text them, email them, call them, whatever it is, and register your displeasure. That's how you want to do it. Uh, <laughs> a laminated poster is fucking close to useless. All right. Jim Dolan, is, your people are definitely listening, too. Um, okay, so let's talk about, um, let's, let's, let's move on to Brian Johnson. So Brian Johnson's company, yeah. you want to move on to that? Or you want, no, you, no, I, I do. Like, what, what was interesting was I read the article, one of the articles. Yeah, there's the article, which was the Bloomberg article, where he obviously okay, so decided he's going to roll this out. But then himself. I realized later when I started looking, reading more about it, I've met this guy. Okay, so let's, <laughs> let's just give a little bit of, of, of background to the story. So um, Brian Johnson is, is a company called Braintree, I think, that mm-hmm. he made a lot of money on. And um, he's, I guess he's 45 years old, and he evidently uh, is, does not want to grow old and die like the rest of us. So he um, has a, a team of sort of physicians and nutritions and all this stuff, um, spends $2 million a year, which is, I mean, it's not, it's a significant amount of money, $2 million a year. But if you think about what billionaires do with their money, it doesn't sound like the craziest no, amount it's of money. Like probably less than fuel for most people's yachts or planes <laughs> or whatever. Um, so so he's he has his team and he eats this incredibly uh, healthy diet and he's he's very fit. All these pictures, you see all the pictures of him? Yeah, he um, looks great. Yeah, no, he's 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 he looks like an MA uh, like a like a martial arts fighter. Like he's like um But he's pretty skinny. He's, he's not, not like that super, skinny. I mean I think I saw him like two months ago. He was oh, yeah. pretty skinny. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, so you, yeah. I guess the question. So there, there, this is like a like a kind of sport like out there in the culture, like crazy billionaires like doing these things, and everybody right. makes fun of them. Um, uh, I don't, I don't see that the, I, the pictures make him look a little silly. I think because he's obviously primping for the camera in this way that's a little embarrassing. But what he's actually doing, like why do why do no? There's nothing wrong f- with it, right? So this it. is the thing. So first of all. Um, he and I attend a, a conference that you're not supposed to talk about publicly. It's like the Freemasons or something. It's called Dialogue. It's really not a big deal. But um, the Freemasons, <laughs> yeah. But um, he's an intense dude. Like I think I sat next to him at a meal, and first of all, I definitely would have thought he was younger than 45. Right. He was really fucking intense and spoke in this sort of very deliberate, you know, like every syllable enunciated way. Intense, right? like impressive, like you were. Intense, like intense, like this is a lot of energy coming out for like a random lunch or dinner or whatever it is. I mean, clearly like, this is an interesting guy, but, but you know, what, what to me is like, look, so my first reaction, which I think is probably most people who read the Bloomberg stories first reaction is, oh, this is absurd. What a waste of money. And even worse than that, it was like, the guy doesn't eat anything that tastes good ever. He has to do all. They showed of these, some of the food though. It didn't look that bad. I mean, the description like vegetable of it were terrible. sludge was how they, they call it. But did, I, that's what I read in the story too. And then they showed a picture of him with his food, and you're like, looks like some good vegetarian. Yeah, I've tried some of it, but overall, just like his life has been transformed to center specifically around this thing, right? right? And. W- do I want to live to 120? I fucking definitely do, right? I love doing life expectancy <laughs> quizzes online. And generally speaking, you know, I, I am mindful of the sort of, you know, diet, sleep, exercise, not drinking, you know, not smoking cigarettes, uh, getting preventative care, going to the doctor, mental health. Like, I pay attention to all of that stuff, but still in some level of moderation, right? I also last night went out for dinner and I had dessert. Um, so, you know, for me, no. But the reality is everyone's got their own balance, right? And for some people, some people might say, fuck it. 
you know, I'm just going to eat ice cream and shoot heroin and I'm going to die at 27, but that's what I want. Okay. That is, <laughs> it might be stupid, heroin. but that's your right. right. Um, some people might be like this guy and try to live to 150. And I think most of us are, you know, not on either extreme, but, but the instinct and it's sort of a terrible human instinct, is to immediately make fun of someone, judge them, and decide that you are smarter and morally superior to them. And I did that too. And then when I took a step back, it's like, I'm not fucking moral. I'm not morally inferior to this guy. And the choice that he's making is any more, no more or less valid than the choices that the rest of us make. But why can't he do that? No, I, I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I, the question is, is why do you need to... Like, if, if he had discovered something in the course of doing this, that like, hey... I do this and it works in this way, then you publicize it and that's like a useful service to people. But if you're just being like, look the luxury that I have being able to afford all this and, and yeah. do all this. Yeah, I mean, look, it looks a little tone deaf, not only like the Dolan stuff in a way, right. but one, he may end up just through trial and error discovering something that ends up Sure, no, I agree. Yeah, could. But two, let's assume that he deeply believes in the cause of longevity, right? And by right. the way, there's a lot of people in the tech world in Silicon Valley, because I've, I've met a lot of them, who, who really do, right? Like to them, in the same way that Elon Musk is worried that artificial intelligence destroy us or people want us to be able to go to Mars so that when Earth is, is totally decrepit, you know, we have another option or whatever it is. There are people who would say human longevity is the most important thing because because that ultimately is the, the biggest determinant of our, of our life, right? So um, maybe sometimes, you know, you kind of want to publicize the cause and move it forward and you do something that isn't perfect, you know, um, but nonetheless, you just want to get the message out there and you need other people to be aware of it. And look, we're talking about it right now. So if his goal is... I want to further public interest in this because that will lead to more investment, more education, more people trying it, therefore more exp experimentation and different results. I think he's achieved that. Um, you want to play your entrance music? Yeah. Well, should we tell the story tell the story. You better first. tell the story. All right. Yeah. So, um, so when I worked for, for Chuck Schumer, uh, I got enamored with the idea that Chuck should have an entrance song. Um, and this just came out of, like, do you remember even why? It, it just, I mean... Just you, do you really, like really co-host this podcast with me and then ask why weird shit popped into my head? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I still don't understand <laughs> it. You learn nothing? <laughs> um, so I, I just found it, you know, a, amusing the notion of why don't we have it? But it wasn't just like, oh, if he's going to give like a big speech at a campaign rally. It's like, what if we really made this a constant in his life? So what I wanted was a guy with a boombox that would literally always be five feet ahead of Chuck. And every time he walked into a room, he would like rewind, hit play, Chuck would have to wait, and then he would go into the next room. And even within the office, it would just be room to room to room. In the office. That was my dream. <laughs> that was my vision for it. So I, I'm gonna, it was, uh, so the, the song that I thought uh, would make sense. Wait, wait, even before you play it yeah. though, um, and uh, we're gonna play it without mentioning what it is, and then it, if anybody okay. can guess it before I me, mean, not that it's, it's something you'll be able to play in your own mind. But um, the, um, did you review a lot of things? Like, how did you get to this track? No, I just heard this song, and I knew it was uh, right. You knew it was right. Okay. All right, let's so hear do it. You, what I'm trying to find right now is I had sent you, like, the link of when the song came out. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to find it and play it, and Jack's, Oh, I thought you had it all I thought you had it all. I just up. had the song queued up, not, oh, wait, the, not the minute. But but Jack will just queue up oh, the, oh, the oh, time you, I, I waste trying to find it. You, you said, you did say it was, it was, it was, it was 308, I think it was. So now 
imagine you're Chuck Schumer, and every time you enter the room, this plays first, right? It really announces you. And right? also, it would, I think it would literally change his personality because, like, even just hearing that, like, I, I start to like think how I would walk into a room, and I and it you would, would it you would have a lot more confidence. You, yeah. you would walk with your your head up high, you know. Like, I I think in a weird way, like uh, Bob once, and this was long before sort of the iPhone and all that stuff. I remember talking about soundtracking, which was sort of something now that we all do without thinking twice about it, but I think was more deliberate back in the 90s, which is, you know, having music that you're going to walk down the street listening to specifically to create a certain vibe uh, in your mind. Now, of course, you know, again, we're just doing it all day because the technology allows for it. So, you know, it's a version of that. So you um, you picked this song out. Um, just, I want to, I want to go a little slow on this. I, I, I want to feel what the um, presentation to Chuck was like and what the reaction was like. Do you, can you get, can you put us back in that moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those things where, look, uh, there were some downsides working for Chuck. I've articulated them on this podcast, <laughs> but there, there were some real upsides too. In that, he's a really creative, open-minded guy, right? And like, and, and a big Kid Rock fan, and a huge Kid Rock. You just gave away the the <laughs> well, we, artist. Oh, but it was going to be like a contest with a free coffee at P and T, and now. Oh, do you want me to take this out? It's it's too late now. Nah, forget it. No, we, we could take this out. We're fucked. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but but Chuck, you know, to his credit, he really is an open-minded guy, and because I was pretty good at like getting him attention all the time. But, uh, okay, yeah. but but I, I want specifics, just in the I'm sense getting of like. There. Okay, but but you like you go into his office, you have a scheduled meeting, you just pop in. No, once. I, no. I think I want my recollection is I think we were actually in the car. Okay, um, and, and you picked your moment, and I picked a moment where I was like, you know, we could use entrance music. And to his credit, he didn't like say no. He's like, what do you mean? And I explained it. Now, look, the image of the guy with the boombox to me and, like, saying halt and making Chuck wait each time he entered the room. That was part of it, yeah. That was part of it. And to me, that was really part of the most amusing part. Did you think that that guy might be wearing, like, an Adidas jacket with Chuck's name on the back or something like that? Like, was it, like... You know, it'd be more amusing if it was just sort of like the body guy who's like yeah. carrying all the stuff and, you know, wearing a this suit that's like way too hot and everything else. I think that would actually be better. <laughs> right, okay. But, um, and I talked to him about it, but of course I couldn't play the songs. I hadn't prepared enough in also, advance. Also, Spotify didn't exist. Right. So he, but I think, did, did the iPod exist back then? This no, not. Like 2000 or something like that? I think the iPod was a little after that. So I found some mechanism, I forget what it was now, where I did at a later date play it for him and then he thoroughly rejected it he thoroughly rejected it yes and, and in a way because like he's don't, not an idiot. don't ever bring this up again i mean you know again th- there were a lot of downsides of working for chuck but um no i mean he he was in some ways that was part of what was fun with about him was like you could be really really creative and he was into it not to the point where he would let me play kid rock every time he walked into a room um but you know you could sort of like throw crazy shit out there Bradley, i hate to it. say it but it feels like something that someone at tusk strategies should do for you we should just have a guy <laughs> with the entrance music and and we should do it in the office just like room to room you know, but I would do I, I I would mix it up a little bit. Like I'd be like it, it would it, the guy would have to read your mood and be like, "Where's Bradley so, right so now?" So I had once I had always thought you know that song E Pro by Beck. We can play that now as well, I guess. <laughs> so so I thought that I Just was thought, like get if, I was gonna, if I was going to if I was going to give an award copyright at some time that like I would like want to go up to the music of E Pro and Megan, you may remember this. I think you were the one that asked me this. So here, here's so I'll, I'll tell a story and then I'll play. Which is I was giving I was asked to give a speech by Matt King, who's a, a good friend of ours, investor in our fund, former CEO of FanDuel, active advisor to us, uh, runs a huge chunk of Fanatics right now. But Matt took like a break and he ran this like 
insurance trucking business that was like a little strange. And they were having their convention in like Schaumburg, Illinois, which is like, you know, a suburb outside of Chicago. And he said, can you come talk about autonomous trucking or whatever it is? And so I did. And then Megan said, they want to know what entrance song you like. Whoa. So you've and had so I was it. like, I have it. I know what I want. <laughs> so it was E-Pro right back. I'll, I'll give it one more second. I think this wasn't the actual point that I wanted. Wow. And I can picture you kind of punching the air, like coming in. Yeah, like. but then you know what? It didn't work. Oh, really? It was just sort of loud and awkward and like... And you walked out and you're like, ah, sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. No, like I, I just sort of pretended like it didn't happen. But, uh, and then the whole speech was actually a little strange. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. So the one time that I actually tried doing entrance music for myself, it was a failure. So um, I, I have to say I could talk about entrance music for the, like the rest of the time. What would your song be? I, you know, I don't even want to go there because I want to have to. I haven't thought about it, and I, I need to think. I'm going to tell you next week. Thought? Everyone is refusing to participate. In this no, topic. no, I, I, I'm yeah. not refusing. I just want to, like you, you've developed these ideas, and it's they're true. very, I, they're I, very I've good had ones. This, this kid rock thing going for twenty right. something years. These are good yeah. ideas. Latigra, um, Latigra, okay. There you go. Yeah. All right, all right. Good Megan's got hers. Good one. All right, Hugo, I'm, look forward to hearing. You know, it was really funny though. Is I was at the Rangers game. They let me in because I don't have any apparent beats yes. with uh, hey, well, Now, once they hear this podcast, and, and I did, you're I did out. have, I did have beer. So, I, like, I think everything's still functioning okay. But they, um, the the Rangers skate out to um, Bob O'Reilly, and it's kind of crazy because it's like a fifty-year-old song, and it still sounds amazing. It works. That song like, just works. It's weird. I was like listening to it. I was like, I was getting kind I, of like little chills like before that the song. <laughs> I think it's just one of those songs that always works. Yeah. Um, so, but I wouldn't do that because that's too conventional, right? It, it like yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It can't kid. Yeah, no, Kid Rock is is, is the way to go. Um, you have a Sesame Street story, and the reason we're telling the Sesame Street story is because um, I'm a I, I read obituaries. The New York Times obituaries, and actually the Washington Post obituaries are quite good too. Um, and the Economist, they they do a weekly obituary that's awesome. So I read obituaries a lot. There was an obituary of one of the founders of Sesame Street this week. Lloyd Morissette was his name. I didn't know anything about his story. Really fascinating in that, like they were just like the he, he worked for a foundation, I think, and. They just had this idea that, like, wow, kids are watching television, but television for kids is terrible. Why don't we really think of something? Why don't we develop an idea that's quality television for children? And it's just the most basic idea. And then this incredible institution was born out of it. And anyway, he died. He's, he's, he lived into so his I'm, 90s. I'm gonna do, there was one more substantive topic that I did want oh, to did. hit on, oh. like, uh, presidents and classified documents. Okay. So but, you want to talk about Sesame Street first? Yeah, we'll do that first. Okay. So. so the, and it, I don't even know if it's a good of a story. We'll see. If if it's good enough, we'll keep it in. If, uh, you know, you've set Jack, a high bar with the entrance feel, music because that free was to good this shit. One out. This is not it's as good. good. Shit. But but we for some reason we just didn't. Our kids didn't watch Sesame Street. We just never showed it to them. And did it they just, watch something else? It's a little bit like, uh, but o overall, it just sort of wasn't part of their lives. Okay. And. I go to a meeting once. We're going to have Steve Roth, who was the chairman and founder and CEO of Vornado, which is a big real estate company, but they also had some kind of private equity arm. And I, it was there because he had some giant rezoning he needed, and he wanted my take on it. Fine. Um, and we were talking to different kids. I said, yeah, my kids were really small at the time. And I guess he had just bought Toys R Us. And in his office, there was a closet filled with toys. So when the meeting's over, he's like, you got to take some toys home to your kids. I'm like, all right. Um, and so one of the things he gives me is a Burt doll, right? And so I give it to Lyle, who sort of seems indifferent to it. 
And then like a few nights later, I hear him like kind of yelling in his bedroom, in his crib. And I went in there and he kept saying, I want the yellow one. <laughs> and I was like, what's he talking about? And then finally I realized that Bert had like gotten thrown out of the crib and onto the floor. But he really, whatever it was, he had no idea it was called, but it was the yellow one. And he really wanted it. So, okay. I think that's, I'm going to give that, that's not as good as the entrance music, but no. I think that's kind of a nice story. Yeah. So, I, I still laugh and, when I think and, of the yellow one. And it yeah. shows, I mean, the, 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 you know, those are Muppet characters or proto Muppet characters and they do have some kind Intrinsic of. Intrinsic appeal. Yeah. They're right. unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I'm going to give i'm gonna i'm gonna vote for leaving that in the episode bradley tell us your substantial so this is on the subject of of um top secret documents <laughs> right, which is know, like the kind flowing of st- from yes. kid, kid rock to to the yellow one to now classified now documents. this is the kind of story that if i were trying to predict which is one of the reasons i don't try to predict um your interest in like if i said like oh so let's talk about biden and the top secret documents you'd be like shut up I'm not no, the reason why okay. is as megan well knows because she actually oversees it um we have a tiny division within Tusk Strategies called Kronos Archives, where we build occasionally very high-end digital archives um, for famous people, for big companies, for foundations. Um, and the idea is to really capture everything they have on either a period of years or topic or whatever it is, digitize it, meta tag it, come up with a better, better narrative structure for it. Um, and whether it's on an internal server or an external website, however they want to do it, um, it becomes their their archive of record. And so I feel like I know a little bit about this topic. Um, and, and I guess the thing that I just don't understand, which is I understand why what happened happened, which was just nobody was paying attention to this at all. And the staffs were just grabbing shit and they weren't paying attention. They didn't quite know. Yeah, it wasn't like they were like. No, I don't think deliberately. Maybe Trump was trying to sell stuff to Putin or China or whatever it is. But I think everyone else, Pence or Biden or whatever, was, was probably. By the way, my guess is this probably applies to every fucking president and vice president. Um, but is there another way to do it that just seems so much easier, which would be you cannot take anything with you. You leave with nothing. Then after you're out of office, within, I don't know, six months, whatever it is, the National Archives sends you a very detailed list. It might have 40,000 items on it or 300,000 items on it. Here is everything that you are entitled to that we will send you, which means here's what you can have. And anything that is classified, you never get it. And if you took it with you at this point, now it's a clear felony because you were intentionally stealing classified documents. And then you just provide it to them on the back end rather than let them take stuff on the front end. This is not that hard, right? right? And so, you know, I just don't understand why they can't come up with a solution because, okay, so you're, you're Biden now. One, they can't indict Trump anymore on the Mar-a-Lago stuff because they have to indict Biden and Biden's Justice Department is not going to do that, right? So, <laughs> Let's so, hope not. <laughs> yeah, so they've already lost the, the high ground on this issue. But it seems to me that rather than this thing just festering and festering, just say, look, this was a really stupid practice. We're all guilty of it, but it was just the way things were done. Here, we're instituting this new system right now. It's airtight. Nobody leaves with anything. If you do leave with anything, that is a felony, prosecuted by jail time or treason or whatever it is. And here's how you will be made aware of what's available to you and how you request it. And that's it. And anything else is, is off limits. It just seems like I just don't sometimes understand why like a modicum of common sense doesn't enter these conversations. Well, I think you know the answer to that. Yeah, but in any case, um, let's move on to our last item, which okay. is our weekly recommendation. Yeah. Bradley, what do you got this So week? I got a weird one today. So oh, good. Shockingly. Um, so I woke up this morning. I was very thirsty. And I went <laughs> oh, to the no. kitchen and I grabbed a raspberry spinthrift. We really like spinthrift in our home. Yeah, me too. I like uh, it. We like great. What's your favorite? I like the lime. You like, right. You drink one right now. Megan, do you have a favorite? 
you're you're the one who introduced me to it. Remember? I'm yeah. The only one oh, so you're you're limited on this, yeah. right? Uh, well, yeah, you had one in my right pumpkin yeah. day. Um, Blood orange, I think, is my new favorite. Okay, I've had it. Yeah. Raspberry and grapefruit would be mine. I Grapefruit's guess tart, really good too. Yeah. So I, we had, I grabbed a raspberry out of the fridge and I kind of took a big swig of it and it felt refreshing. And I was like, huh. But also, you know, the first thing I do when I wake up is I make coffee, right? And I was like, just looking about, I'm like, you know, I was about to pour water in the little container. And I was oh my like, God, you didn't put the raspberry spindrift uh-huh. in the coffee. I was like, this is water. I wonder how it would take, taste if you made coffee with raspberry spindrift instead of with regular New York City tap water. Um, and so I didn't do like... I think it's spindrift, by the way. You just said oh, spindrift. Spin drift. Yeah, I'm yeah, calling the wrong thing. Yeah, okay. Right. So... Um, Unless you have some other thing in your house. Not that I'm aware of. Um, so look, I didn't do like fill it. I usually fill it. it, it go, we have a mocha master and it, you can put up to like 10, which is really like so you, Wait, so the, the stove top... The stovetop mocha mat. Oh, it's pretty small. It's pretty mobile. Okay, so you, but you pour it in the you top. You pour it at the top, and I only took it to two. So I didn't do like my normally when I make coffee myself, I, I do go to eight, level eight. I don't finish all of it, but but that's how much coffee I like to have. So I, I was judicious, which for me is rare in and of itself, right? Usually I just order a hundred of whatever. Heard it you is. use the word? Yeah. Um, so I made it, and you know what? It was pretty good. I have to say, if you are looking, if you feel like your coffee routine has gotten old and stale, and you are looking for a change of pace, I would say it's surprisingly raspberry spinthrift, or you could experiment with your own flavors, was actually good. It had like, and if you think about it, you know, you go to these like super pretentious, you know, coffee bars or whatever it is, and they have like hints of oak and, you know, (laughs) barley and cranberries or whatever it is. So like, what's wrong with a hint of raspberry? So um, my recommendation today is if you're looking for a change in your coffee routine, Give Raspberry Spinthrift a tie to try. All right. That is the best advice I think you've ever given. Um, I mean, the entrance music is good also. Okay. Bradley, thanks. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Okay. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Carol Zimmer. Carol, as you probably know, is the host of the Now What podcast, um, but has this incredibly long and impressive background in media and really wanted to bring her on to kind of talk about the state of the media today. So, Carol, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm really very honored to be here. Oh, well, yeah. I'm not yeah, sure. I'm honored, really. honored maybe an exaggeration, but we're happy. <laughs> um, so just, I'm going to give the listeners a little bit of, of background just to validate you, and, yeah. and you'll be too modest to do it yourself, so it's easier if I do it. You've worked at NBC, at CBS, at NPR, at Bloomberg. You've won lots of awards. You made an award-winning documentary, um, you know, podcast. Safe to say that you have seen the media from every conceivable angle. Is that a safe yeah, assumption? I, I feel like a historical memory sometimes, because I started out at a time when there were not many women in right. broadcasting. In fact, the government was like pushing radio stations to and television stations to hire more women. That's where Leslie Stahl got her mm-hmm. start and Judy Woodward, Judy Woodward, a lot of women who came in at that time yeah. because there weren't any women there. So yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. And certainly there are is more equality now, but I don't even know if there actually is, uh, you know, equity across the line there between diversity, gender, all that kind of stuff. I think we have a ways to go. Yeah, well, and arguably, this is for the first question I want to ask you, which is, you know, the state of the media today is so fragmented and segmented and people just kind of read and listen to what already they, they already think that it's sort of like even diversity will just be based on which group you're with, right? Some groups will be much more diverse. Some groups don't want diversity. If you had to sort of overall 
give the state of the media today a grade as far as their role as the fourth estate? What would you give it? Well, what are you talking about when you even talk about the media? Because when I talked about the 70s, there were three broadcast networks. When you look at what the media is now, what is the media? Is oh, it that the, was my next question. I, Go ahead. I mean, yeah. what is it? Is it, is it Facebook? Is it uh, Twitter? Is it NBC? Is it uh, streaming? What is it? I mean, there are so many elements that make up the media, and you don't have the kind of, uh, you know, sticking to rules. There used to be rules. There used to be a fairness doctrine. If you put something on the air with an opinion, you have to have somebody come on with an opposite opinion so that it would be aired. What do you have today? I don't know what the media is, Brad. Right. I mean, I, th I think I would argue that at least for the non-internet solely media, it, the ones who have a profitable business model are the ones who just retreated to the corner and they just made their audience who is aggrieved feel as good about themselves as possible by sort of shitting on everyone else as much as possible. And that's true on the right with Fox News. It's true on the left with New York Times or MSNBC. And by the way, that approach makes money. Like, I understand why they're doing it. At times, it's a little ironic because they appeal to their readers by saying how much they hate money. And yet they're doing that specifically in order to make more money for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But, but overall, so like when you got into broadcasting and, and your colleagues, female and male, what were the reasons and motivations why people became journalists? So here's the thing that I feel very strongly about. When I became a journalist, I really wanted to get everything right. I wanted to cover the biggest stories. I wanted to be there. And I wanted to be there for the eyes and ears of people who weren't there, let's say for the verdict of a big court case, or at the UN, at the Security Council, or I went to Pakistan to cover the aftermath of the bombing of 9-11 in this country. So I wanted to get it right. I very, you know, and I respect journalism. And most of my colleagues always wanted to get it right. They did their homework. And for me to have someone like Donald Trump say, this is fake news, or don't trust that person because they're a reporter, is extremely undermining to democracy. And it makes me really angry. Understood. So today it feels like there's just this blending of opinion, fact, analysis with at least seems like every journalist sort of really interested in working themselves into the narrative and the story. How did that evolve? Was that what it was like when, when you started out? Well, you know, it's funny because in the 70s, there was something called happy talk uh, television uh, that was introduced in the local news stations where you had to not only be grim and tell, you know, serious stories, you had to kind of like fool around with your co-anchor and make jokes and stuff like that because they wanted to make the uh, news more fun. Yeah. Well, you know, that was the 70s. How, what is it now? So you say, uh, you know, like so 50 years later, it's gone so much more to the other extreme. If it's not, if news is not entertaining now, it's designed to either make you angry, yep. take action on some level. It's not, it doesn't have that kind of down the middle thing. And anyone who does do the down-the-middle thing is considered boring, boring or old-fashioned. Right, and their business model falls apart. CNN's not really succeeding because they're trying to actually, from what I can tell, do it reasonably properly. And as a result, the audience that's there for MSNBC or Fox isn't there for that. 
Well, I think you made the point about uh, social media, and that is it, it's designed to make you angry. It's designed to get you revved up because that's the business model. That's yeah. the way they're going to make the most money. Yeah. So that does not fit well with the fact that somebody wants to tell you a fact. This is what happened. This is what it is. It's not sexy. If, if you say that, you know, if you say, okay, at 3.30, there was a fire and two people were, it, you got to rev this thing up and you have to have influencers who are talking about it because, right. so it, it has gone from something about reporting the news, like what Walter Cronkite did, to some kind of circusy kind of thing. And that's what that's how people get their news. Yeah. So if let's say listeners eighteen and they're sort of starting to get kind of more engaged in the world, and they say, "Okay, Carol, um, I just want—I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I don't even know what all my views are yet. I just want to read or watch or listen to one thing and get objective." non-biased news, where do they go? Well, you could go to NPR. I mean, I don't I don't know if you agree that they're non-biased. Right. I think I, they I would say they're pretty far left, don't you think? Well, but they do try to cover both sides, okay. I would say. I, I mean, maybe they don't do it equally, but I think that they try. I, I think that, uh, I don't know, if you look at PBS, you might think it's boring, the news hour that they do, but they're, they're pretty straight in the center, I would say. Um, I don't know if those are outlets that appeal to young people. That that's part of the problem. Maybe what we need is is an, an organization that does appeal to young people, but is fair. Is right. not you know right wing or left wing or just kind of like right. fluff. I'm not sure if they were trying to be fair or not, but there have been businesses that we've seen kind of come and go. BuzzFeed and Vice that that were designed to appeal to young people, made in a way to try to be entertaining. Um, you know, I don't know how objective they were or not, but they're you know at, at the very least they're not incredibly successful technology companies in the way that investors thought that they might be, which means they haven't really caught on the way that investors thought. So if if that doesn't work, where does it come from? I mean, there are, for example a lot of really rich people buying media outlets, whether it's the Atlantic or the Republic or Time Magazine or Washington whatever it is, Post. Washington Post, and we'll, we'll get to Bezos in a second. Um, is, is that what you need? Do you need sort of people who don't care about losing money to be able to sort of sponsor the news at this point? What do you think? That is a good question for you, because you could do it. Yeah. You could do it. What would you do? It's, it's a good Look, I, we're sitting in my bookstore, P&T Knitwear. I'm, it's a lovely, wonderful bookstore that... Uh, operates at a significant loss because this was the only way to do it, and I was in a position to do so, right? So I don't know. I mean, the problem is if I'm, say, Mark Benioff, and I own Time Magazine just as, as an example, I would probably want to think that I'm pretty fair and reasonable. I would describe myself as an independent centrist, so therefore it feels like it's in the middle to me. But at the same time, you know, the sort of that Ronald Reagan, I paid for this microphone, right? And if, like, if I'm going to own an outlet, then I'm going to use it to express my views, you know. Um, so I, I, it kind of cuts both ways. The only person, and you work there, that I've seen who doesn't need to make money on it, owns a media organization, and seems to not interfere at all is Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about Mike Bloomberg's media empire is that this is a, his media property was basically supported by his terminal business. Right. So it wasn't making money either. And right. many attempts to get more viewers to Bloomberg Television 
I think the radio does pretty well, but Bloomberg Television has always been kind of like, we need to make money, we need to, you know, yeah. and they haven't figured out no, how to do it. So, yeah. you know, I'm not sure that profit making goes along with down the middle. Right. Because because Bloomberg Television did try to do it down the middle. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. And, and what they have, at least, at least in my view of, of this, is Mike's terminals are like one of the most profitable things ever invented, yeah. right? Yeah. And to me, Bloomberg News pro provides more content for the terminal so that it becomes a more and more appealing product, which is part of how they keep sort of competitors at bay. You always hear and talk about these terminal killers that are being invented, and they never succeed. And I would argue at least part of it is Bloomberg has a legitimate, real, sophisticated news organization that provides real value to the terminal subscribers. And they were they were pretty early in the game, you know. I mean, I think competitors had to catch up with Bloomberg. You know, they, he he was very far-reaching. As I mean, even looking at his media properties as kind of like a promo for the terminal, um, it was a good it was a good thing to do because it's it it made that machine so much stronger. And uh, he, he, you know, he's a guy, he got $10 million from Solomon Brothers, and a lot of guys would just, like, go, I don't know, go to Florida or something like that. You know, that's not Mike. Mike took the money. Everybody has good ideas. But who actually puts good ideas into yeah, the world? Not many. He did. He did. He said, oh, I'm going to take this money. I'm going to do it. And he did it. He did it. He created this Turned company. $10 million into $80 billion. Yeah. Yeah, so and did good things along the way. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's. And what's also interesting. So I remember when when I was running the campaign in '09. There's a guy you probably know him, Henry Goldman, who works at, at oh, Bloomberg yeah. News. Yeah. And you know, Henry is like the sort of prototypical kind of really smart, experienced, ornery kind of guy. I actually really happen to like him personally quite a bit. Um, and he would cover Mike critically. And I'd be like, what the fuck, Mike? You literally own this. Can't we stop this? And he's like, I won't do it. Yeah. And it was yeah. it was respectable. But, you know, to your point earlier of is it possible to have a down-the-middle news organization that is profitable in some way? I don't know. Because it seems like it either relies on really rich people in some way subsidizing it or it's entities that are kind of failing like CNN or successful entities that just don't even bother. They just report sort of the opposite of the fairness doctrine, right? Fox News only reports one, one side of the story. The New York Times generally reports only one side of the story. Um, so let's assume this doesn't improve and get better. What happens? Well, here's the thing I question. Should somebody like Elon Musk own Twitter? Uh, should a private, wealthy individual own a company that has far-reaching uh, influence in the global sphere? I I'm not sure that, that that's a great idea. And so if you're a rich guy and you are a rich woman and you can do that, are you, to what degree are you benefiting the public? And where is the benefit to the public? I think that's a question we don't ever ask anymore. What, what, what are we giving the public right. that is worthwhile, that is promoting democracy, or at least, you know, supporting democracy? It's not democratic no, when it's a, you... it's about influence. That's no, it. You, you, right. you got, you know, if you've got uh, conspiracy theorists uh, who are great influencers and are, you know, getting people to believe that Anthony Fauci is like uh, from the deep whatever, the deep, the I, deep. I, last I heard he was from Jupiter. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, what do they call it? The deep... Deep state. The deep state. I mean, this is like, what? 
what and but if you have to be a kind of person who thinks through these things and i think when it just goes out there no, people don't think through it oh it's the voting machines that's why you know bolsonaro lost in brazil because the voting machines got screwed where did he get that idea from trump saying right. the voting machines cost them his election so let me give you a dystopian but not i think crazy scenario which is what we're seeing in media only continues because ultimately capitalism works on the business models that, that produce profit, right? And the ones right. that don't die. Right. So media gets more and more and more segmented. No one's, everyone is not watching this or listening to the same thing. You're only hearing one point of view. That gets people even more polarized. The message then sent to politicians is, well, if you're running a Democratic primary, you better not do anything that the far left doesn't like because they're going to vote you out in the next primary. And the same thing on the Republican side. So the members become more powerful and more purist. That's how you saw the Freedom Caucus totally disrupt the speaker's race 15 times. Mm -hmm. um, and then we just sort of devolve into a place where the government comes completely dysfunctional. And then the, the, the most dystopian part would be, I would argue, we hit a point where it doesn't make sense for us to be one country anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you literally can't mm -hmm. get anything done, mm -hmm. you could see how the state of Texas would say to New York, you believe that abortion isn't murder. You believe immigrants are good. You don't believe people should have the right to have guns. You think climate change is a big problem. We don't think any of those things. We don't want to share our decision making with you and vice versa. You know, I think that the government doesn't work anymore. And I think that's already happened. Uh, the country splitting into different Parts. I don't see that. I mean, they tried to do it during the Civil War. It didn't work. I know that. I know this is way different times, but I don't see that. I do see a, a worry in that a lot of countries which used to use the U.S. as a model are becoming more like the U.S. in its dysfunctionality yeah. and authoritarianism, and that is scary because that seems to be a trend in Europe and. Uh, you know, in other places. Yes, yeah, Latin America, parts of Asia, Philippines, yeah, Indonesia. Yeah. I don't know where it can go, and I don't know how you can stop it. Because if you can't get any kind of gun legislation after five-year-olds get killed yeah. in Connecticut, I don't know where you can take right. this. So Chris Jacobs, who was a congressman from the Buffalo area, a Republican, there was, you know, one of the many mass shootings we now have. One was in, the, in a supermarket in Buffalo, I think about a year ago. Right, right. He dared to utter the words, maybe we ought to look at uh, controlling assault weapons. He was stripped of the line, couldn't run for re-election. His career was completely over just for uttering the words of it, right? And if you think about the one gun bill that did pass Congress, it was because the NRA let it happen, right? They said, we got to give them something. Yeah. Let's come up with the right. most watered-down possible version, right. and we'll sort of tell Republicans it's okay to kind of let it move through, and then we won't have to deal with this again for five years or 10 years or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. You're right. If, if slaughtered kids isn't enough to move people, then what is, right? I, I, you know, it reminds me of the Bill Clinton days um, when Bill Clinton had to get a budget passed, and he, the Congress was against him, and he had Marjorie Margolis, uh, who was yeah. a television, she had originally a television yeah. uh, reporter who was a congressman, congresswoman from Pennsylvania, um, actually Chelsea Clinton married her son, Oh, I and know that and part. yes, okay. uh, he, he's her husband. Anyway, he he needed he needed her vote 
for this budget, yep. to pass this budget. And she knew she wouldn't get reelected if she voted for it. And she voted for it, and she didn't get reelected. But they, he got his budget passed. Has anyone done that since? Well, that's the question. <laughs> why won't these people, uh, why aren't they willing to give up their jobs? Why don't they have a moral component that right. says, I'm going to do the right thing? I, so I would argue that 99% of elected officials are desperately self-loathing and secure people that can't live without the validation of holding office. And they have a hole in their psyche that is only filled by feeling like they're relevant. And filling that hole is more important than any individual policy issue, anything else. And as a result, politicians are never going to do the right thing ahead of their own political self-interest. What we do as a you know political consulting firm, a venture capital fund, all the stuff that we do, advocacy at my foundation, is we try to figure out how do we make what we want in the political interest uh, either as a carrot or a threat or a stick um, to whatever politicians we need because we don't even expect them to do the right thing. Like we just, human nature is what it is. I don't think I agree with you because okay. I think that there are still people who get into it for different reasons. I look at a guy like John Fetterman. Um, I think he really cares. I mean, I think when he was the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, he got those tattoos that indicated, uh, you know, everyone who was killed by gun violence in Braddock, Pennsylvania. He's got these tattoos with dates up and down his arm. I think he's for real. And I think there are people who are for real. And I think there used to be statesmen. There used to be gold in my ear. There used to be people who did push for what they believed in, even against great odds. So I don't think I, I don't I think there are enough of them, but right. I think that I think it exists. Okay, but let's let's argue Fetterman and I've never met him, so I don't have a, a personal view one way or the other. But um, let's say in the nineteen sixties LBJ was able to get dramatic civil rights legislation through the Senate kind of against all odds because he did get people to vote in what was not their own self interest, right? Forty, fifty, sixty years later if you're Fetterman, it seems to me that just the ability to do that is so much lower because, you know, before members of Congress or, or any legislative body could meet, talk, debate, negotiate, and then reach a conclusion and present that conclusion to the public. Now, every single conversation is tweeted out immediately, every single thing. And then the minute it gets tweeted, the base on either side goes crazy and they inundate them with emails and tweets and phone calls and texts and everything else and they back off, right? And so, and even if they don't back off, Chuck Schumer in this case, if it's Fred Fetterman would say, you know what, John, you're gonna cost us $20 million in fundraising for the DSEC or whatever it is, you gotta come back. And so the people might not be less well-intentioned than they were 60 years ago. I just think that the tools to do the right thing don't exist anymore. I think you could be right on that. LBJ was, could bend a lot of arms. And at the time that he was trying to get that civil rights legislation through, even though the Republicans and the Democrats were at odds with one another, they went out for drinks. They, uh, some of them were friends. They invited people to their family barbecues. It was a different atmosphere yeah. so that you could move people in a direction more easily, I think, than you can now uh, because there isn't that unity. Well, there's a unity in the Republican Party to push everything away. There's a unity, in the, to some degree, in the Democratic Party to get some stuff done. But you're right. It's very splintered, and the means of telling you about it are very splintered, too. Right. So I'm not sure what to do. Do you regulate Facebook and Twitter? Yes. And well, so I, I have a very—the listeners are used to hearing me rant about this. 
Um, Twitter and Facebook and all the platforms received immunity from any liability for the content posted on the platforms in the Telecommunications Decency Act of 1996. The law made sense at the time because you wouldn't have had the birth of the internet without it. But as you said earlier, the business model for the platforms is advertising, which is clicks and eyeballs, which just are far easier to get through toxicity and negative than it is through positive. So as a result, even if they say they want to moderate content, that's not how they make money, right? So if you repeal Section mm -hmm. 230 and all of a sudden they were legally liable, mm -hmm. then I think things changed, not unlike the tobacco companies in the 1980s. And while I'm not sure the plaintiff's bar overall is a good thing for America, I, I would trust them to get this one right <laughs> and very aggressively go after the platforms and probably produce a lot of change. So that's part of it. But even broader, would we be better off with a parliamentary system so we just had multiple parties and you had to have a coalition? Or would that make it even more fractured and worse? Yeah, I don't know how much I, how well I understand the parliamentary system. Actually, I saw I saw it in the what was that TV uh, series Borgen? Oh, that was good, right? yeah. It was very good. It was yeah. the first time I actually saw the kind of maneuvering you have to do to keep a parliamentary government, you know, happening. I don't really know. I mean, if I personally am in favor of regulating these platforms, I I don't think they should be putting out. Uh, I mean, newspapers have editors. That was, you know, when you read a particular newspaper, you may not have agreed with the opinion pages, but the, when they described a fire, the reporters were telling you the facts of that fire because an editor was going through it, making sure that those facts were right. We have no editors on social media. So this stuff is coming from, you don't know who it's coming from. It could be coming from a robot. It could be, you don't know who's telling you that, you know, Fauci is a part right. of the You're deep right. state. You, you don't you know. Could, you could plant something and then you sort of spend enough money promoting it on Twitter, on Facebook, through SEO, and all of a sudden it's it starts true. to become a thing, yeah. right? And it becomes yeah. true. Yeah. So uh, given all of that, is there anyone in the media that could be the savior here? Is Jeff Bezos the savior? Is, you know, or is it just like even as powerful and rich as some of these people are, they can't fix this problem? I don't know how Jeff Bezos could be the savior. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, he's had the paper for a, a, a while, and they've laid off a lot of people. I, I, I don't know whether you consider the Washington Post a successful business model at this point or not. They're operating yeah. and they're putting out good stories. I, I don't know that anyone, I don't know. I, do you think Jeff Bezos could save the world? Or do you think, uh, you know, Zuckerberg has not done a good job as far as I can tell. Uh, he right. lets a lot of stuff on that platform that is destructive. Well, that's because it makes him money. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I do think that, look, actually, I think Zuckerberg in some ways is better equipped than Bezos to do this because Amazon is a platform, it's a shopping platform, right? And right. We, we all use it, but we use it to buy toothpaste or whatever it is, yeah. you know, not, not get news from it. Yeah, I think if Zuckerberg said, this is the biggest problem facing society, and therefore um, I'm going to, you know, agree to remove the liability protections, I'm going to aggressively moderate content, and I am going to produce my own news organization that does everything down the middle, and that's what we're going to promote on our feed to all of our 3 billion users, maybe he could have an impact doing that. But, you know, even then, like, my kids are 16 and 14, and they laugh at the notion of Facebook, right? Even Instagram for them is kind of old and, and dilapidated. So what are they, TikTok? TikTok, um, Snapchat, which be real. Um, yeah, I mean, they're kind of... Why? Because it's fast and silly, or what, well, why? Because so it's, it's the only way that they connect with each other 
when they're not together in person. So like if you're not, my son who's, you know, uses Snapchat, so what would happen if you didn't use it? And you'd say, well, I wouldn't know what anyone's doing. No one would know what I'm doing. Because everybody's on it. So then you have to be on it. And also, maybe not on the platforms, but all their schoolwork's online too. And so pre-COVID, you know, parents, if I could try to have some rules around screen time and all of that, once the pandemic hit, because what do my kids say? I'm doing my homework. I have no fucking idea, yeah, right? Yeah, and they could even yeah. show me a screen at that moment that looks yeah. like homework, right? And then a <laughs> right. minute later, it's back right. to Snapchat or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So now the, the one bright spot to me, I don't know if you agree with it, is podcasting. It, it seemed like you and I are biased because we both have podcasts and enjoy doing it. But it feels like it's maybe this one exception where overall it's not nearly as toxic, not as angry. I know there are some, but, mm-hmm. but overall it feels like it is the kind of almost last bastion now where people try to have sensible, reasonable conversations just to sort of provide information as opposed to, you know, political rants and all kinds of, you know, racism and homophobia and, you know, xenophobia and everything else. Yes. I mean, I love podcasts. The one problem I see is that there are more than 3 million of them in the marketplace. And Mm -hmm. so it's very hard for an independent producer to get enough listeners to support you know the yeah. pod. I mean, you don't need advertising. I, I, sub- I don't right. take. I have not so far taken advertising. I'm supporting my podcast. You're supporting your podcast, just like you are the bookstore. Yeah. Now, if I needed to make a living from my podcast, what would I do? Yeah, it would be. It would and be incredibly it, and, hard. and what kind of pressures would be on me if I had advertisers? If I had to have a million listeners in order to make money, you know, yeah. like, so I feel very grateful in a way that I can go on the air and say whatever I want because I don't have that kind of pressure, right. you know, but, um, I don't know. Do you, yeah. I, do you see things shaking out? Do you see the industry of podcasting somehow? Cause people no, don't know I, how to I, make I kind of worry the other way, right? Exactly. And one quick note before I forget to the listeners, if you do have a podcast and you're looking to do it in a way that doesn't cost you a lot of money, we offer free podcast studio here at PNT Knitwear. Anyone can use it. Uh, you just have to sign up. So it's one way to at least significantly reduce your costs uh, of doing a podcast. But no, I mean, that's the problem, which is I think lots of people enjoy it, right? I enjoy doing it. I enjoy listening to podcasts. I get a lot of value out of it. But is any of my activity sort of economically productive overall that it would make this an industry that is really sustainable over the long haul? I'm not sure. I think, you know, we're in that early days where everyone's excited, so everything gets subsidized heavily. Uh, You know, right now, Spotify, for example, is saying, okay, we think there's a lot of potential growth and listenership in podcasts, so we're going to spend all this money to hire Bill Simmons, Joe, you know, whoever it is, and we'll worry about kind of the profits down the road. Um, but if you don't have that attitude, and by the way, the worse the economy does, the less people have that attitude, right? That's sort of a growth mentality. Um, then yeah, then, then then it may just be that there's no no real market for this. Also, you have to have like a million listeners to get a company with a lot of money excited. Right. You know, so that too, I mean, how do you grow a podcast uh, up to a place where you have a million listeners? I, I don't know. It's, it's real. Look, we think about this too. And like, like I said, we don't have to worry about advertising, but at the same time, we want more as many listeners People as we can. People to listen. Right. And we have a, a decent, I think where Megan said we're in the top 1.5% of podcasts globally or in the US or something like that. Um, but it's still not that many listeners. And you know how we can get more? 
I could buy advertising. But for me to spend a lot of money buying advertising for a non-revenue producing activity, it doesn't really make a ton of sense, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, occasionally we'll have an episode where we'll put up on, on someone's newsletter just because it seems like it makes it's a perfect fit. But that's really few and far between. So what do you think? You're just going to keep doing it because you're having a good time and it's yeah. serving a purpose for you and for the public? I think for, for me personally, it's a couple of things. Now, now you, you just turned the tables, by the way. <laughs> um, but it's one, I enjoy it, right? This is fun. Just get to talk to people right. like you. And you and I wouldn't have met if not for podcasts, right? So that's number one. Number two, um, it gives me a forum to sort of think about my ideas. And I feel like now I've got kind of a cycle between my columns, my teaching, my podcasting, where I kind of keep developing different thoughts and ideas through the different mediums. And it's kind of helpful to me to have the chance to do that. Um, but third, and look, this is the business argument for why I take a loss in subsides of podcasts, which is, you know, more begets more. So, you know, Tusk Venture Partners gets deal flow, we get investors, all that stuff, because people see me out there in the world, right? They see me on TV, they hear a podcast, they read a column by me, whatever it is. And so for me, you know, having a significant public profile that, that people take seriously is really important for all of my businesses. So I could view Firewall as a loss leader in a way. Um, but that's because I'm a business person who happens to have a podcast, right? right? If you're a podcaster like you, where do you go? Yeah, where do I go? Um, and, you know, for me, it's the culmination of a lifetime as a journalist. And I feel like, oh, I spent all this time at Bloomberg, at NPR, at all the companies I work for as a street reporter reporting on really cool events, but I was always assigned uh, events or things to talk to, that uh, people to talk to. Now I can talk to whoever I want, only people for me, that I find interesting. Right. And then, like you, I get to meet those people, I get to talk to those people, I get to exchange ideas with those people. That's why I do it. Yeah. And because, um, you know, there are people who come to me and say, it's like listening into an intimate conversation right. exactly. with somebody who's having coffee with someone. Totally. That's, and that's, yeah. and that's fun, you know, right. uh, to give that to people. That's really fun. Yeah, and it's a, I remember when AOC ran against Joe Crowley and she was a total nobody and should have lost by 30 points, one of her strategies, and it was really brilliant was she did every conceivable podcast that would take her because it forms a more there's a more intimate bond between the guest the host and the listener than any other media right, right? and you hear someone on a podcast and you feel like you know them whereas if you just see a 30 second clip on tv or read a quote in the times or whatever it is it just comes and goes and barely even filters in well it's like radio radio is a very intimate medium it's way different than tv because you're not seeing anything you're just listening and you're going to have to imagine what it is that person looks like in the studio right. or what other things that are going on so uh, it, it is a very private medium in a way. I do think of it that way. Even though it goes out and people publicly can hear it, when I'm talking to you, it feels private. Right. What's, uh, as a podcaster, what, what's the favorite episode you've ever done? You know, I was just thinking about this recently. I uh, talked to Norman Lear, who uh, I don't know, you know, a lot of people won't remember him. He's 101 now, and he was the king of television, like, in the 70s. Um, and this guy, I loved him because we, we did this. I talked to him in his Beverly Hills office, and he was, like, maybe 94 or 95 when I talked to him. Young man. With the energy <laughs> of yeah, young man. <laughs> Uh, with, by the way, uh, he had children, he had twins in his 70s. I mean, he's like such a character, this guy. Yeah. And, but the attitude 
you know, for me, I want to know how do you get up in the morning and feel great about the world and feel great about yourself? And are you even tempered or are you a miserable person? This is a guy who is just happy to be alive, you know, and he's got this great energy. And he he was he had just done a pilot for NBC that they bought about a retirement community. And I said, Norman, could you put me in it? And he said, you are too young. And I was well, like, that's, that's, that's a really good way Norman. to say no. Yeah, that's like a, per, a, per, a perfect way. But look, right. I, yeah, it's funny. I mean, some of it must be his age because, you know, as I'm now kind of in, in middle age, I am starting to realize that, you know, it's just about me feeling good about my place in the world, which on to some level means doing back. good things. You're yeah, just giving but, back. But, but also, it doesn't have to be this zero-sum game where for me to win, everyone else has to lose, and I have to mm-hmm. achieve these specific goals. But it took till my late 40s to sort of figure that out. And so, you know, I think it's maybe one of the really benefits of, of aging is that you do get that kind of wisdom. And in a weird way, if you're sort of hyper ambitious like I am or you are, it takes a little bit of pressure off of you because you don't feel like you have to solve all the world's problems or constantly be considered the best of the best. Um, you can just do things that you find meaningful and interesting and that sustains you. Also, I think giving a helping hand to other people. I, I'm interviewing uh, Judy Woodruff, uh, who had just retired as the sole anchor of PBS NewsHour. And she's been in the business more than 50 years. And uh, Andrea Mitchell, who is you know, uh, also a longtime journalist, yeah. was saying, you know, Judy was doing really well. With, there weren't a lot of women in the business, but she always put out a helping hand. She helped me, Andrea said, you know, and she didn't have to. And that idea that you are, that you do give in many ways, or should, or feel like you are, and that helps your value as a person, I think. You know, like people coming up. Right. You can either try to buy things to get dopamine hits and feel good about yourself. You can do things to get dopamine hits and feel good about yourself. It turns out that the latter is much more lasting and sustainable than the former, right? The former, yeah. it, it, you're happy for a while, and then you got to buy something bigger and nicer, and it just and the and the you you appreciate it over a smaller period of time because you're sort of used to nice things at this point, and so it all keeps going. So, final question: It may take you a minute to think about it. Is okay. So you've brought up a, a lot of great historical figures in journalism over the course of this podcast. If we were creating a female journalist hall of fame, or maybe it already exists, but let's say we were doing it, and I said, okay, the first class. Eight people, ten people. Carol, you decide who they are. Who would you induct? Well, first of all, you know, Barbara Walters died recently. Yeah. And I wonder if she's getting uh, as much attention as, as she should. She did a lot of firsts. Yeah. And um, so I respect her, you know. Um, I remember Walter Cronkite. You know, he was a, he was the voice of reason. He was the person who told you that JFK got assassinated. I remember him very well. I remember Huntley Brinkley. I, I shouldn't really talk about this because then you'll all know how old I am. But, he, you know, that was a no-nonsense news team that did the news at 6 o'clock. Yep. Um, there have been, and the 60 Minutes journalists, you know, when I went to interview Leslie Stahl, they have a lot of older journalists at 60 yes. Minutes. She has an office in the back row. Next to her was the office where Mike Wallace was. Next to him was the office where Ed Bradley was. It was like a 60 Minutes Hall of Fame. And it was, a, it was thrilling to me. As I remember watching those people. And they were such good journalists. So those are some of the people those I put some. in there. Yeah, I, I, my Ed Bradley, <laughs> certainly Ed Bradley story. But back when he was on TV and really famous, 
sometimes you know, I'd call someone and they say, "Who is?" It? I say, "It's Bradley." And they say, "Ed Bradley?" And I'm like, "No, sorry, it's just just me." Well, so. Donald Trump would call people and say, "Oh, uh, you know." Uh, what would you say? He was like a, a PR person. Yeah, he would pretend yeah. to be his own yeah. flak yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Which, yeah, by the yeah, way, yeah. He, yeah. he is his own flak, right? Yeah, well, he did very well. He's yeah. now Donald Trump. Um, how do people follow you? How do they find a podcast? Okay, so um, I am on Twitter at Carol underscore Zimmer. Uh, check out my website, which is really cool, www.carolzimmer.com. I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. So yep. please contact me and listen to Now What on all podcast platforms. Yeah, highly recommend it. Carol, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Matthew.